Well, we find ourselves again this morning in the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians. We have subtitled the book of Philippians, The Gospel-Driven Life, The Gospel-Driven Life. Paul is concerned above all that his dear friends in Philippi would be living in a consistent manner with the implications of the gospel that they have received and now believe. And as we've said multiple times before, and we'll continue to say, that the theme verse of Philippians is chapter 1, verse 27. The first imperative, the first command in the book comes in chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul desires that the, the Philippians' entire lives be shaped and driven by this glorious good news. He desires that when they face the daily issues of life, whatever they may be, whether those are, you know, how to interact with one another properly in relationships or how to carry out the ministry of the gospel that they've been entrusted with, how to minister to one another and how to minister alongside one another or how to deal with persecution or false teaching or temptation, or suffering, or trials, and all of those issues, Paul's concern is that, that the Philippians are able to take those truths that they have come to understand as a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ and apply them to their lives, to apply those realities to all the different facets of life. He means for the reality of being redeemed by the blood of Christ, the reality of being reconciled to the Father, of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, to have an effect on how they make decisions and navigate life together. And there are particular issues that Paul wanted to address with the Philippians. I mentioned a couple times that Paul has received word from Epaphroditus of the goings-on of the church in Philippi, and his desire was to instruct them regarding how to properly apply the gospel to these more disconcerting situations. Epaphroditus has brought news both of persecution and of false teaching. And so one of Paul's main exhortations, chapter 1, verse 27, is that the Philippians would stand firm in the face of both of those threats. And there was also a report that the seeds of disunity had been sown in the congregation, such that two of the leading women of the congregation who are named in chapter 4, verse 2, need to be urged to live in harmony together, to be of the same mind together. And so a major emphasis in Philippians is the unity that the believers must experience between one another as a result of the gospel. And on top of that, because unity can't be achieved when parties are pridefully insisting on their own rights, Paul also exhorts the Philippians to a Christ-like humility. And then through all of the letter and throughout all their lives, he, he highlights the importance of a necessity of holy joy throughout all the different circumstances of their lives. Steadfastness, unity, humility, and joy are kind of the main issues of exhortation and instruction throughout this letter. And so he's got a lot to instruct them about, a lot to exhort them to. There are multiple areas of their lives for which Paul desires for them to more faithfully submit themselves to the Lordship of Christ. But as I mentioned last week, it's instructive that Paul doesn't lead with those corrections. All of that instruction, all of his concerns are set in the light of his great love and his affection for the Philippian church. It begins the letter by reminding the Philippians first of the Christian's identity as slaves and saints of Christ, and then by greeting them in grace and peace, which brings to their mind the glorious good news of peace with God that comes by means of his great grace, which the Philippians enjoy as fellow believers. And on that note of sharing a common identity as fellow slaves, as fellow saints, fellow beneficiaries of this great gospel, Paul launches into this exuberant expression of thanksgiving for the bond of their relationship. And it was that affectionate love and deep thanksgiving that we witnessed in, in verses 3 through 8 that was the subject of our message last week. Last week, we observed that Paul's telling the Philippians that he prays for them and gives thanks to God for them with joy confidence and with affection, and that that joyful, confident, and affectionate thanksgiving that's aroused within Paul in view of their participation in the gospel from the first day until now, and their partaking in the grace of Christ along with him, that joyful, confident, affectionate thanksgiving is the stuff, is the thing that it consists, that which consists in gospel-driven fellowship. So that was last week. But as we turn to verse 9 this morning, 9 through 11, 
Paul goes on to talk about the content of his prayer for the Philippians. We learned last week, verses 3 to 8, that he prays for them. But in verses 9 to 11, we learn what he prays for them. So let's read that text together. We're going to focus on 9 through 11, but we'll read the first 11 verses to get the entire flow of Paul's thought. So Philippians 1, 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, we have just noted that Philippians is about living a gospel-driven life, living in a manner worthy of the gospel. And as last week we considered gospel-driven fellowship, the components, the things that make up gospel-driven fellowship, in our text this morning, the four elements of Paul's prayer for the Philippians here make up four elements of gospel-driven prayer. Four elements of gospel-driven prayer. We have here four prayer requests Four things that a Christian prays for his fellow believers when his thoughts of them have been shaped by the gospel. You could even call them four spiritual goals that Paul has for the Philippians and for us as we seek to faithfully walk with Christ and minister to our brothers and sisters in a manner worthy of the gospel. But just like last week, before we consider the content of Paul's prayer, I want to take a few minutes to say a few words about prayer itself. That this single complex sentence in verses 9 to 11 begins with the main point right up front. Paul says, this I pray. This I pray. That's the, the main verb, the main point of this long sentence. Prayer was central in Paul's life. It was an absolutely vital component of his spirituality and his relationship with Christ. And that shows in his letters. After his customary thanksgiving for the churches to whom he's writing, he almost always confesses to them how unceasingly he prays for them. In Romans chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, he says, For God is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers. To the Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, For this reason I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. To the Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you. And the Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. It's to all of the churches. Prayer was an absolute priority for Paul in his life, and especially for those churches whom he would write to and instruct. You'll notice that if you look at the content of pretty much any of those prayers and then compare them with the content of the body of the letter, that much of what Paul commands them in the letter is represented what he prays for in the prayer. See, Paul's a, a good pastor. He's a good theologian. He has an excellent practical theology of the, the sovereignty of God and the sanctification of the Christian. He knows that he is insufficient to effect the sanctification of his dear flock. And, so, and he knows that before he, he should ever expect even his dear friends, the Philippians, to receive his exhortations and to put them into practice in their lives, he knows that he must come to God with those requests on their behalf. After all, as he'll write in Philippians chapter 2, it is God who works in them to will and to work for his good pleasure. And I think we can learn from that. As we engage in the joyful and yet nevertheless difficult sometimes work 
of true gospel-driven fellowship that our text last week called us to, that as we labor alongside one another in, in putting to death the deeds of the body and, and putting on holiness and righteousness, we can be tempted to be frustrated at our brothers and sisters' progress or lack of progress in sanctification. Maybe they have a slower pace than we'd like. You know, we might have said all the right things at all the right times, maybe even come up with a, a clever way of putting, it, putting things, and they say, oh, wow, I haven't thought about it that way. Uh, thanks for telling me that. And then next week, there they are right back in that bad habit. And, you know, we can get frustrated, but before we complain about them, we should ask ourselves, have I prayed for them? And not only have I prayed for them, but have I prayed for them in the specific area, particularly that I want to see improvement in? Because it's God who's going to work in them to will and to work for his good pleasure. The Puritan pastor Richard Baxter wrote, Prayer must carry on our work as well as preaching. He preacheth not heartily to his people that prayeth not earnestly for them. And that's true for me and Phil, and it's true for you as you proclaim truth to your friends. You don't have to be a preacher to preach. But as you preach truth to your friends... You're to your brothers and sisters. Remember that you don't preach to them heartily if you don't pray for them. See, Paul understood that. He understood that devotion to prayer is a duty for all Christians, that every follower of Christ is commanded by God to be earnest and regular in prayer. But Paul also understood that prayer was more than just a duty enjoined upon him from without. It was a delightful compulsion for him from within. See, his love for the Philippians and his sincere desire for their growth in godliness, coupled with his knowledge that he himself couldn't accomplish that growth by his own resources, that compelled him to pray to the one who could accomplish that growth, who did have the resources for that growth. And this is why prayer glorifies God, because prayer is the open admission that without Christ, apart from Christ, I can do nothing. Nothing. And it's the subsequent turning away from ourselves and our own resources, turning to God in the confidence that he will provide what we need. So prayer humbles us all as needy and it exalts God as wealthy. And so prayer is an absolutely essential component to the faithful gospel-driven life. So we've understood that Paul prays for the Philippians, but now we come to the content of his prayer. And here we gain a little, bit, a little bit of insight into Paul's heart here as a pastor and as a man. It was Robert Murray McShane who famously quipped that a man is what he is on his knees before God and nothing more. So who was Paul on his knees before God? What does the content of Paul's prayer tell us about the content of Paul's character? Well, as we observe the, the four elements of Paul's gospel-driven prayer here in verses 9 to 11... We're going to find that Paul prayed for what really mattered. He didn't engage in trivialities and fringe things. He, he went after what really mattered in a Christian's life. Four elements of gospel-driven prayer. He prays for love, discernment, integrity, and fruitfulness. Love, discernment, integrity, and fruitfulness. And we'll go through each one of those. Number one, Paul prays that the Philippians would abound in love. Love. Read the first part of verse 9 with me. He says, And this I pray, that your love would abound still more and more. The love that Paul shared with the Philippians caused him to give thanks to God with joy, with confidence, and with affection like we saw last week. But now he prays to the Father, the giver of all good things, that the very love which he knows to be in them from personal experience would abound still more and more as it relates to the ongoing ministry that they had with each other. Love, of course, is the supreme characteristic of the Christian life. It's that first characteristic that Paul mentioned when he discusses the fruit of the Spirit in the believer's life. The fruit of the Spirit is love, Galatians 5.22. When Jesus was asked what was the greatest commandment in all the law, he responded, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul would say in Romans 13, 10, that the whole of the law is summed up in the command to love your neighbor as yourself because love does no wrong to a neighbor. And in Colossians 3, 14, Paul says that love is the perfect bond of unity that holds together all of the other Christian virtues. So there isn't any wonder that the request for abounding love 
is atop Paul's prayer list for his friends. But there's so much confusion about the nature of love, that, that this love that Paul speaks about, that it warrants our time and attention to present a biblical understanding of this cardinal Christian virtue. First of all, many people, both in the world and in the church, confuse love with a sentimental infatuation. These people understand Paul to be calling the Philippians nothing more than having good and warm, positive feelings for the Philippians. They relegate love to a merely emotional impulse that's acted upon when it's there and not acted upon when it's not. Others, though, reacting to that misunderstanding, swing the pendulum to the other side. And they insist that, that true biblical Christ-like love is nothing more, nothing more than an act of the will. Love is not an emotion, they exclaim. It's a choice. It doesn't matter how you feel about somebody, you love them anyway. I have sympathy for that position, for those who think that way, because I understand that they're trying to say that we shouldn't be slaves to our emotions. We shouldn't love when we feel like it and not love until we feel like it. That's wrong. I agree with them that that's bad. But I think that that, that position misses the mark as well, because you don't need the Holy Spirit to love that way. You just need a, a strong will. Anybody who has a sensitive conscience and a strong will can do good things to people they really just can't stand. But are you honored with somebody who says, I'm going I'm to come over, cut your grass, I'm going to come over, have uh, lunch with you, have tea with you, talk with you, show you love, and say, but I really hate your guts. <laughs> but I'm doing it anyway. How does that make you? You honored by that? Is that love? Even a hypocritical Pharisee could do that. But Paul thanks God in, in Romans 6.17 that Christians became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which they were committed. The Apostle Peter calls us, 1 Peter 1.22, to fervently love one another from the heart. So the biblical understanding of love then emphasizes the best of both of these aspects that so many people want to take one or the other. Biblical love is both affection and action. It is an affection, it is a delight, a finding satisfaction in that which is lovely and then acting as an overflow of that delight to benefit the beloved. I'll say that again. It is an affection, a delight, a finding satisfaction in that which is lovely, and acting as an overflow of that delight to benefit the beloved. So action, affection, delight, benefit. I should say affection, action, delight, benefit. In particular, the love that Paul is calling the Philippians to is a greater affection and a deeper delight in Christ, the one who is supremely lovely, supremely delightful, because to be honest with you, people aren't delightful all the time. People aren't always lovely. People can be sinful. And God doesn't call us to delight in that which is inherently not delightful. So how do I love somebody who's not lovely? To just bear down and grit my teeth and go after it and, and give, give it my best college try? No. You set your affections on the one who is supremely delightful, God himself, who is always objectively supremely lovely. And, that out of, and out of the fullness of the satisfaction that you have in him, you're freed to lay your life down in loving service to those who are even unlovely. That affection that the light that you have in Christ overflows and works itself out in action, even for the Philippians, such that their humble service and love to one another is fueled supremely by love for Christ. It's a root and fruit thing. Paul's saying he's praying for the, the fruit of the Philippians benefiting one another in love, but he knows, and they know, that the root of that is an earnest devotion and sincere love and affection for God himself. After all, the Apostle John says, 1 John 5, 1, whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. It's our affection for the Father that deepens our affection for one another because you're my Father's children. I love you because I love him. And the greatest illustration of this principle, this affection action idea, is in, in the Philippians' own life is, is recorded in 2 Corinthians 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 to 5. Let's turn there quickly. It's, this is a, a text that talks about the Macedonians' giving. And Philippi, Philippians, Philippi, was in Macedonia, leading city of the district of Macedonia. So when Paul is talking about a collection that he took up for the poor saints in Jerusalem, 
He's talking to the Corinthians about it. He references the Philippians' giving. And this is just an amazing statement of the Philippians' giving. But listen to the way, listen, let's see if you can, under, you can find the motivator for this giving. The Philippians just like tight-fisted and they didn't want their money to go anywhere, but they were like, mm, you know, Paul's asking for it, so I got to give it. Or was it something else? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 5. Paul says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we, as we had expected, but they, gave, they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So where does that come from? Begging and urging beyond my ability to give money away. It comes from where? Their abundance of joy, it says. Their great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy, and their deep poverty combined together and welled up in a, a, an actual loving, sacrificial, beneficial act. It was their abundance of joy, their affection and delight in Christ himself that loosed their fists on their money, loosened the purse strings and freed them to be able to, to give, to benefit others in love. Now, as that illustration makes plain, this affection for Christ that works itself out in practical benefit and service of one another was not something that the Philippians were lacking. Paul's prayer is not that they would begin to love, but that the love they had already manifested would abound still more and more. See, the Philippians are very similar in this respect to the Thessalonians about whom Paul would write in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 and 10. He says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. This is not Paul getting on their case. He's seeing their love for one another. And, and indeed, he's benefited from it himself. And he's saying, Excel still more. Abound in that. See, true biblical Christian love is not a static thing. It's like I have love or I don't have love. It's dynamic. The verb may abound is in the present tense, which speaks of a continual action. Paul is praying that their love would go on continually abounding still more and more. This is progressive sanctification. We're not all of a sudden zapped and made holy in an instant. The fight for holiness is not a, it's not a sprint. It's not even a series of sprints. It's a marathon made up of millions and millions of little moments and little decisions that eventually add up over time to the outcome of a life lived. But even though Paul understands the progressive nature of sanctification, that it's not all going to happen in an instant, neither is he content with the status quo. There is always a potential to attain to a greater standard than we've already attained. You say, even the Philippians, even after all their financial sacrifice, even after all their ministry to Paul, they can still grow? Well, you know what I think was happening, evidenced by this growing tension and the seeds of disunity that I mentioned before? We all understand how sometimes it's, it's the most difficult to love the people and express affection and, and love to the people who are the closest to us. You know, unfortunately, that's the case for, for many. You know, our, it's a lot of times it's the hardest to express love and affection to those who are in our own family. I think that with the disunity that was beginning to fester in that congregation, I think Paul is telling them, listen, you've shown me such wonderful Christ-like sacrificial love. You've shown love to the saints in Jerusalem for the sake of the gospel. But don't forget about each other. Don't forget about the people that are right there at home. Continue to love each other in that same way for the sake of the gospel. So they can excel still more. What about us? Can we excel still more? Say, even Grace Community Church? This is John MacArthur's church. Even Grace Life? Yes. Yes. 
You've done well. You have loved each other fervently and from the heart. You've ministered to me and you've ministered to my wife in the few short months that we've been here with love, with affection, encouragement, prayer. But I don't think I would be a benefit to you if I was content with the status quo. And so I pray along with Paul that your love would abound still more and more. And so the first element of gospel-driven prayer is a prayer for increased love. And the second element, the second element of gospel-driven prayer that we can glean from the Apostle Paul here is discernment. Discernment. Let's look again at verse 9. Paul says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. It's interesting here that Paul doesn't leave the notion of love unqualified. He doesn't subject his words to potentially being taken out of context by an overly sentimental, watered-down, kind of mushy, gushy, squishy view of love. As one commentator put it, love never travels alone. I like that. Paul prays that the Philippians' love would abound in real knowledge, in real knowledge and all discernment. See, love is like a, a mighty flowing river that's directed and contained by these two riverbanks called real knowledge and all discernment. Real knowledge is the NASB's attempt at uh, translating the Greek term epignosis, which indicating a transcendent or a, a moral knowledge. There are multiple words in Greek for knowledge. Epignosis speaks not so much of a knowledge about something, but an intimate knowledge of something that comes from personal experience or relationship. So Paul uses this word often in his prayers for the churches, and especially in the prison epistles, it's used with reference to a knowledge of God and his will. So the letters that he wrote around the same time as he wrote this one, using this word epignosis in his prayers in just about all of them, he uses it in a very similar fashion. And it's interesting that it's, it's not so much a knowledge of things or a knowledge of, of uh, practices, but a knowledge of God and God's will. Just a quick a couple of references for you to write down. Ephesians 1.17, he prays that, he would, that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the epignosis, in the knowledge of him. Colossians 1.9, Paul prays that they'd be filled with, all, with the knowledge of his will, the knowledge, epignosis of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding and that they would be increasing again in the knowledge of God. And then in, in Colossians 2.2, he says that a full assurance of understanding a full assurance of understanding results in the knowledge of Christ himself. And so we can understand this prayer for the Philippians' love to abound in real knowledge, to speak of the believers' ever-increasing experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ through the word of God as revealed in the scripture. The addition of this phrase, in real knowledge and all discernment, dispels any notion that love is to be understood in an anti-intellectual fashion as if thinking is a barrier to emotions. Thinking is a vehicle to emotions. It's true that you can have all knowledge and yet be worth nothing if you don't have love, 1 Corinthians 13, 2. And yes, it's true that knowledge on its own puffs up while love builds up, 1 Corinthians 8, 1. But according to our text, true love abounds in real, intimate, personal knowledge of Christ himself through his word. As Pastor John says in his commentary, any love that is not grounded and growing in the truth and standards of Scripture falls short of genuine biblical love. So love abounds in real knowledge, but it also abounds in discernment. The term translated discernment here isn't the normal word for discernment in the New Testament. It's actually a word that's used only here in the New Testament. But it is often used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament and appears most in the Old Testament in Proverbs, which is, is fitting. That makes sense because like the wisdom that the sage talks about in Proverbs, this kind of discernment or insight is speaking of the practical wisdom and, and understanding that comes from a real knowledge of God and His truth. It's the, the high level of biblical, theological, moral, and spiritual perception that guides the actions and the words of those who are wise. James Montgomery Boyce says it well. He says, without love, we are only clanging cymbals. But this was never intended to be a wishy-washy, undefined, sentimental love. It is the love of Christ. 
Hence, it must be a love governed by biblical principles and exercised with judgment. He nails it. And what's the purpose for this? Why does Paul pray that love would abound in real knowledge and all discernment? Look with me in verse 10. He says, so that, so you know it's a purpose, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. So that you may approve the things that are excellent. Now, I just mentioned that the word for discernment in verse 9 wasn't the normal word. Here in verse 10, the word for approve is the normal word for discernment here. It's dogimatso. It's the word for approve, to attest, to discern, to examine. And it was used in the ancient world of assaying metals, of testing coins and other metals for their purity. Paul uses this word in relation to being able to approve or discern the things that are excellent. In other words, love must abound in real knowledge and all discernment so that the follower of Christ can accurately discern not just between good and evil, but between what is good and what is best. A lot of decisions are made not between good and evil, good and bad, right or wrong, black and white, but what is good and what is better, what is good and what is excellent. It's the person who has this spiritual insight, this discernment that is going to advance further in maturity, advance further in understanding, going to be more effective in the ministry. And so Paul's praying that for his beloved friends. You see, without this sound experiential knowledge of Christ through his word, and without this practical discerning insight, love wouldn't know how to express itself with actions and with words that are appropriate to each situation. If love is an affection that issues in labor for the beloved's benefit, knowledge is required to know what that benefit is in a given situation. And discernment is required to know how to go about accomplishing that benefit in the most excellent way. So, for example, you could have all the well wishes in the world for somebody who's got a broken bone, who fell and broke their leg or broke their ankle or broke their wrist. And your compassion, I mean, it could be literally legitimately off the charts for this person. You feel bad. You wish you could do something. But in order to actually love them, in order to be a true practical benefit to them, you need the knowledge of the human body to make a correct diagnosis and you need the practical wisdom and insight in order to know how to perform corrective surgery in the most excellent and beneficial fashion. So Paul prays that love would abound in real, personal, experiential knowledge of God in the person of Christ as revealed to the Scriptures and then in practical wisdom so that in any situation they would have the insight to be able to serve one another to lay down their lives for one another in the best possible ways. Not just in good ways, but in the best ways, in the most excellent ways. But Paul gives a further purpose, even for that. We've seen that he prays for love and that that love will be accompanied by discernment so that they would serve one another with excellence. But he gives a further purpose. The purpose for serving one another in excellence brings us to the third element of gospel-driven prayer, and that is integrity integrity. Love, accompanied by discernment, leads to excellence, which results in integrity. Look with me again at verses 9 and 10. It says, "...and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ." Now, this word sincere is just a fascinating word in the Greek language. It's a compound word from elikrines. It's made up of two words, the word for helios, which is a word for sun, heliocentric. You talk about the sun being at the center. And krino, which means to judge. And so literally this is judged by the sun. Now, what sense does that make? Well, in the Roman world, one of the largest industries, if not the largest, was the pottery industry. And just like anything else, the various kinds of pottery differed in quality. There was the lowest quality pottery, which was, you know, thick and really solid, easy to make. But the finer pottery was thinner, and so therefore it was, it was more fragile. It was easier to break because if it's finer, it's more rare, it's, it's more dainty, fragile. So often when thin pottery was being fired, it would, it would crack in the oven. And, I mean, it had been completed, it had been molded, and it's in the oven, and all that work, and then there's a crack. And so rather than discard those vessels that were cracked... 
dishonest merchants would fill the cracks with a, a hard, pearly wax that would blend in with the color of the pottery once it was all painted over. You couldn't tell in ordinary light. But when you held the piece of pottery up to the sunlight, when you held the piece of pottery up to the sunlight, you'd be able to see the imperfection because the wax was darker than the rest of the, the pottery. And so honest merchants would often stamp their products with the Latin term sinna sera, which means without wax. And sinna sera is where we get our English word for sincere, which is what you have in verse 10. I think that's cool. And so just as this kind of pottery was, was sun-tested, right? It was sun-tested. It was held up to the sun to reveal cracks and imperfections. Paul prays that the Philippians' love would abound in real knowledge and discernment so that they would approve the things that are excellent, so that they would maintain their integrity. He would have them hold their lives up to the sunlight of God's Word and examine themselves to see whether they were who they said they were. Now, what about you? The call to integrity isn't a call to perfection. It's not a call to absolute perfection in the way that your pottery is, is fired in the oven. But it is a call to be above legitimate reproach, to not hold yourself out as something that you're not, to not sell a cracked vessel as if it was whole. Are there cracks in your character that you are keeping to yourself, that you're making room for in your lives, making provision for? And if there are, what sort of wax do you use to cover them up? Church attendance, coming to Grace Life, going to Bible study, Maybe regular prayer time and Bible reading are your wax covers. Maybe even teaching the Bible to others. Maybe even evangelism and other outreach opportunities that cover over these cracks in your life. Maybe it's just an everything's just fine Sunday morning facade when you know that there's a really a whole lot of things going wrong at home. No amount of religious activity will make up for a lack of integrity. When held up to the light of God's word, that wax will be revealed and it will be burned up on that last day with the wood, with the hay, and with the stubble. But along with that sun-tested sincerity, Paul also prays that the Philippians would be blameless. This is also an interesting word, not the normal one for blameless that you see in chapter 2, verse 15. For example, it's, it's a, a word that means to not cause others to stumble. We think of blameless in it, we think it applies first to ourselves. And there's a version of this, uh, use of this word that is the, in that sense, that, that kind of positive sense. But it's used this way here in a passive sense of causing somebody else to stumble. It's used that way in 1 Corinthians 10.32. Paul says, give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. It's the same word. Be blameless. Give no offense. And so along with having this personal integrity, not lying about their own character, Paul also prays that none of them would be the occasion for another's stumbling. Don't stumble yourself. Don't cause others to stumble. And he prays this way so that they would be fully prepared for the second coming of the Lord Jesus. I love this. Verse 10 says, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Until the day of Christ. Now that preposition, translated until, could also be translated in preparation for, or for, unto. And I think that's the proper sense in this text. The purpose of the Philippians' love, abounding in knowledge and discernment so that they can approve what is excellent and then approving what is excellent, being sincere and blameless. The purpose for all of that is so that they would be adequately prepared for the day of Christ, for the return of the Lord Jesus to receive his saints in the air, to take them to the place that he has prepared for them and to reward each of them for their deeds. So even to mention the day of Christ is to graciously evoke the thoughts in the Philippians' minds about their reunion with their Savior. It's this kind of eternal perspective, this faith in the future grace of God that gives us the strength to fight sin today. I mean, doesn't it? I mean, I don't know about you, but if, if I'm knowing, if I know that I'm going to finally win this battle against my flesh and against my sin, that doesn't make me want to sit back and relax. Like, oh, I'm going to win anyway, so I might as well just, you know, not fight all that hard. No, it makes you fight all the more. Think about any contest you would participate in. If, if you're thinking you might lose a race, 
Well, if you're going to lose, then you might lose hope and lay down and give up. But if you know you're gaining ground on the other runners, so as you sprint alongside the inside on that last straight shot down to the finish line, that excites you and empowers you. It's an adrenaline rush and you start running harder, running all the more earnestly. That's precisely what the Apostle John said in the text that Danny read for us earlier. First John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, now, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we'll be like him because we'll see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him, what? Purifies himself, even as he is pure. The hope of seeing Christ as he is and therefore being conformed to his image gives us the hope and the strength to purify ourselves, our conduct, even here and now. And so Paul prayed for integrity because he wanted the Philippians to be prepared for that final day to meet the Lord. What a loving pastor. And in order to be fit for that day, they needed to work out that righteousness in the present day. And that brings us to Paul's final prayer request. He has prayed for love. He has prayed for discernment. He has prayed for integrity. The fourth element of gospel-driven prayer is fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. Verse 11. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Commentator Walter Hansen captures the thought well. He says, Paul prays that on that day, when Christ examines the fruit produced in his vineyard, the church, he will find fruit of pure motives to love and blameless service of love. That kind of fruit is the fruit of righteousness. And this fruitfulness characterizes all believers. We understand that. This is why, why Paul calls such character the fruit of the Spirit, because any person who has Christ is indwelt by the Spirit of God, Romans 8, and the indwelling Spirit of Christ in every believer produces this kind of practical, worked righteousness in disciples of Christ. Now, we know that practical righteousness is powerless to earn acceptance with God. He is too holy. We are too sinful for that ever to be the case. That positional righteousness comes through faith in Christ alone. But as the theologians have said, though we're saved by faith alone, that faith is never alone. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved unto good works. You know, people quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 all the time. By grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, not of uh, works, but a gift of God so that no one may boast. We, we know that since we were in elementary school, we know that verse. But a lot fewer people know verse 10. Ephesians 2, 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. This is what we were created for, it says. We were given new life to walk in righteousness, to battle the flesh, to lay aside the deeds of darkness, to put on the armor of light. This righteousness, we understand, is not the root of our justification, but it is most certainly, as this text says, the fruit of such righteousness. And even if we were tempted to take any credit whatsoever for any part of our practical righteousness, Paul is sure to remind us that just like our positional righteousness, our practical righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. He is the vine and we are the branches. Apart from him, we can do what? Nothing. It was Christ who died to forgive us our sins. It is his righteousness that we are clothed in so that we can stand before God. And it is God who is at work within us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, the conclusion to all of this, this love which abounds in knowledge and discernment, which results in the kind of integrity that produces fruitfulness, the ultimate purpose of justification and redemption the supreme objective of sanctification is that above all things, God would be glorified. Look again at verse 11. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. See, this is where Paul's ultimate allegiance lies. This is where he's going to get to in whatever text he's writing. This is why he got up in the morning. 
This is why he labored in his ministry. This is why he endured all that unimaginable amount of suffering that we read about in the book of Acts and in 2 Corinthians. This is why he strove for the holiness of all the churches that he planted. This is why he prayed unceasingly for the Philippian believers. All of those complex relationships that we just went through in this prayer, you know, in love or abounding in real knowledge and all discernment so that we be blameless, so that we can approve what's excellent, which results in integrity. All those complex relationships, all of that produces is the glory of God. Every one of those things are motivated and driven by the desire to see God's glory put on display and for him to receive the praise and the worship that he's worthy of from his creation. And you might ask, how does this all glorify God? A lot of times we sort of tack on that phrase, you know, all to the glory of God or to God's glory or may God be glorified because we know that's the right answer because we see it so much in scripture, we couldn't deny it. But there is an amazing amount of comfort and joy to be had in meditating on why and how something glorifies God. And especially this. In this case, on that last day, when the race is finished and the work is done, when believers are finally made perfect, when this poor lisping stum lies silent in the grave, God will be able to look at this pure bride, sanctified and made beautiful as a worthy companion, a worthy companion for his beloved son. And he'll be able to bask in the enormity of the work that he's accomplished. We are sinners. This is a work of purifying sinners. Do you know yourself wretched like this? And we're going to stand pure before the holy God, blameless and with great joy, Jude says. We're going to be righteous. And God did that not by sweeping sin under the rug, not by turning the other way and winking at sin, overlooking it. That wouldn't be making sinners righteous. That would be making God unrighteous. No, God justified and sanctified sinful people by delivering over his perfectly righteous son, innocent son, to die as a substitute, to absorb all the wrath, all the bitterness of hell itself, so that by sovereign grace, through merely turning away from yourself and casting yourself on the mercy of that perfect sacrifice, trusting Christ to be your righteousness, your sin can be counted his and his righteousness is counted yours. What wisdom, oh, the depth and the, of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God to justify the ungodly and yet to also remain just. Who does that? To take filthy, God-hating, self-loving, slaves to sin, and through no merit of their own to conform them to the very image of all the loveliness of Christ himself. <laughs> On that great day, Christ and God are going to look great. His love, his mercy, his grace, his wisdom, his patience, his forgiveness, and his justice, all of his glory will be displayed for all to see in the righteous acts of the saints. That's the point of salvation. That is why God has acted salvifically in history to show himself off. Ephesians 2.7, he made us alive so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Titus 2, 14, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. Why? In order to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. Why zealous for good deeds? Wasn't it enough to just be there? No, because in that day, when he transforms the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, as it says in Philippians 3.21, the pure bride of Christ will clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, which linen says, Revelation 19.8, is the righteous acts of the saints. We're zealous for good deeds because we're going to wear them for all of eternity. A bride, right ladies, cares about what her wedding dress is going to look like. The bride of Christ is clothed in the saints' own righteous acts, and that fuels our obedience now. And ultimately, we're zealous for good deeds because they're going to make Christ look great. Revelation 5, Then I looked, 
And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them I heard saying to him, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Heaven will never get over the manifold wisdom of purifying sinners to be righteous. We're going to stand there in that fruit of righteousness, clothed in this fine linen, and people are going to worship Christ for it. That's got to be enough motivation. That's got to be enough fuel for the diligent labor and pursuit of holiness now. My dear sinner friend, someone this morning who's a stranger to God's grace, why will you cling to your sin this morning? Why will you cling to death in the hearing of such a glorious gospel devised in infinite wisdom from the very throne room of heaven itself? Life, life is offered to you. Why will you die Turn from the sin that you have cherished so deeply all of your life. Turn from it. Confess that to God, that you're powerless to save yourself, that you deserve his wrath, that you deserve hell. You are that bad. And then turn. Put all of your hope, all of your confidence on this perfect substitute this perfect substitute who has achieved your righteousness and your acceptance with God. And it will be given to you one day to join with his saints in that fine linen, bright and clean, and you'll be reunited with your Savior, with your Creator, for a fellowship that you were created to have and enjoy. Forsake your sin this morning. Now would be a great day to come for forgiveness. Forsake your sin. Believe on Lord Jesus Christ. And dear friends, my, my fellow saints, those who know him, those who are reconciled, those who await that day with confidence, let the glory and the joy of that blessed day propel you to abound in love, in discernment, in integrity, and in fruitfulness. May the glory of God himself cause us all to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Let's pray. Yes, indeed, Father, may your own glory cause us to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. We pray for your grace and our sanctification. We pray that we would abound in love, in real knowledge and all discernment so that we would approve the things that are excellent, to be blameless and sincere in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Grant that we practice that fruit, that we bear that fruit right now with one another, in one another's living rooms, praying for one another, holding one another up, meeting with one another, encouraging, exhorting one another. May the, may the beauty of your own glory propel us to faithfulness, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by The Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.